You're listening to Crosspoint Community Church in LaGrange, Texas podcast. To learn more about Crosspoint Community Church, including service times and how you can connect, please visit crosspointchurchtx.org. Good morning. It's good to be back. Feels a little bit like a homecoming. Um, the Lord did some um, some profound things for me and um, let me do some things for Him uh, in my time when I lived here in Lagrange, right across the street, and um, got to serve and worship with y'all. And so it's good to be back, um, Chris. Asked me to cover uh, two Sundays with you right here at the beginning of his sabbatical. And I think he was half joking when he said, you can make it a series. Uh, but I did. I am. Um, so this morning, we are going to cover a big, broad, biblical theme that literally stretches from the first chapter of God's Word to the last chapter of God's Word. Um, and then we're going to focus in a little bit more on some specific examples um, next week. But today is going to be kind of broad and thematic instead of, um, I kind of prefer to learn and to teach um, just on a passage at a time, look at some specific words. Um, but today we're going to hopefully lay a little bit of a foundation for one of those threads that goes all the way through Scripture. Um, I think that does several things for us. One of the most profound things it does for us is helps us um, to appreciate God's Word in different ways. Um, we... Uh, have quiet times, uh, we hope, on good mornings, right, um, where we read little segments of scripture and we come to church and get a little segment of scripture and we went to vacation Bible school and we've got individual stories. And what, um, looking at a big biblical theme, a big concept that flows all the way throughout is helps us to tie it together. To wrap, at least in one way, to kind of wrap our arms around the whole deal. Um, and so, so then when we get a little bit of time in the morning to read or a sermon or a podcast, we can hear things, right, that, that fit along with the theme. And it helps us uh, wrap our arms around it a little bit better, get a better grasp on the fact that this book, it's not a series of different stories. It's just one. It starts in Genesis. It ends in Revelation. We haven't gotten to the end of Revelation yet. So we're still in the story. Um, and it all fits together. A bunch of different people wrote it. They wrote it in different languages. They were on different continents when they wrote it. There was a long time between the writing of Genesis and the writing of the Revelation. Um, that's not even the order that they were written in, but that's the order that we've put them in to read. But it all fits together. It's all one. So when we can look at the things that tie it all together, it makes us better students of the word. But here's my deepest hope today is that um, this, will, this discussion will just kind of whet your appetite for seeing these things in scripture. For seeing that you really can wrap your arms around the whole of it and pick up more of it as you study um, and read <clears throat> 
When we see and understand biblical things, Themes, it allows the scriptures to do in our lives what God intends for them to do. It can, the, the Bible can better do its job in our lives when we can look at the whole and then take the parts sometimes. Um, so that's what we're going to aim for. Um, you're going to hear me use a lot of language. We're going to talk about our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven today and the kingdom of God. Those are the same things. They're used interchangeably. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Um, and it might sound like it's like a closed uh, party. Like there are some people who are in and some people who are out. And that's how it's going to stay. Um, and I, I am going to talk about we and us a lot. And by that I mean those of us who are in a saving covenant relationship with Jesus we are citizens in the kingdom of God but if you are not yet in a saving relationship with Jesus if you don't know him or what he's done for you don't hear this as an us and them and you're the them conversation you're invited we're going to talk more next week about just how many people are invited um into this gig we're going to even talk today about naturalization how you become a citizen of a country that you're not born in we've all been there we've all worked through that process and so if you haven't you're this this isn't a talk about something that doesn't apply to you you're you're invited come on with us um, and so i hope that it whets your appetite for what could be so the kingdom of god it sounds like a big it's a big concept. It's used a lot in scripture. <clears throat> and because we don't, we're not familiar with monarchy, right? Um, and I don't, there's really not even a ton of parallel for people who are citizens of Great Britain right now. They do live in a sort of monarchy. But this kingdom is good and profound and, um, and complex. And I hope, um, that you'll find it compelling and helpful um, for us to, to better grasp who we are um, in Christ as we look at it. Thinking about being a citizen of a kingdom made um, me think about the process of naturalization, which the, the definition is up its front, just from Merriam-Webster, that it's a course of action that you um, enter into to become a citizen of a country other than the country where you were born. Right, people do that here in America all the time now. So I read about that process. Whoa, um, I don't think many of us could actually pass it um, to become a naturalized citizen of the United States, born somewhere else, come here, become a citizen. Um, you have to demonstrate um, a quality usage of English. You have to speak it, read it, and write it. Um, in an interview um, that you have. Then there's an oral examination. Uh, there are 100 possible questions. And you don't know which 20 you're going to get. And um, I think you have to get like 14 or 15 of them right. Like you have to pass it by a good margin. Um, so you have to know the answers to all 100. And several of the questions y'all have more than one answer. Um, like, what's the role of the Constitution? Like, it had been a long time since fifth grade 
um, government for me. And Well, I guess you take it again in 12th grade, right? Anyway, um, you have to know who your congressman is. You have to know who your senator is. You have to ha- You have to have some understanding about how this joint works. But then... Here's the thing. They have to swear an oath, right? Like literally raise their right hands, um, swear an oath. And there's lots of things in the oath. This is only the very small portion of the oath. But one of the things, right, to be born in another country and become a citizen of the U.S., you have to renounce absolutely and entirely all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign. Y'all, this list is funny to me, but profound. Prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty. Um, of whom or which the applicant was before subject or citizen. In prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty, there's a lot wrapped up in that, right? It's the it's like the physical country that you were born in, their system of government, their system of even economics is woven in there, and then people too, right? Like you can't have loyalty to your old king, you can't have loyalty to the old president, you can't really prefer that uh, national anthem. This is this is like it, it encompasses all of it. Renounce absolutely and entirely where you came from, and pledge allegiance to the place that you want to belong to. It involved later in the oath. It involves a promise to serve in the military if needed. Um, to defend the Constitution, right? For those of us who were born here, we were never asked to defend the Constitution. It's a, parts of it sound similar to the, the oath that the president uh, makes, to people who serve in the military make. It's a big deal to be naturalized from one country to another. And for those of us who are in Christ, we've been through a similar process. Our citizenship is not anywhere here on this planet, but is instead in the kingdom of God. And it sounds a little strange to us. It's not the language that we use here in our democracy. Um, Here's a side note. If you come, it depends a little bit on which um, version of the English Bible that you're reading and who the writer of the particular text is. But kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven and scripture really mean the same thing. Um, Jewish people do not say out loud the name of God and don't ever write it down out of reverence. It's too high and holy a thing um, in their minds and in their practice of worship to say or write. So some of the Jewish writers, um, we're going to look a lot next week at Matthew. Matthew was a Jewish writer. He was writing to a Jewish audience. So most of the time he substitutes kingdom of heaven instead of saying kingdom of God. And it's really just a way to show reverence to the name of God. He substitutes the word heaven. So let's don't be confused by that. It's all the same thing. But let's look at some things about this kingdom that we're a part of. First of all, kingdom imagery is used all the way throughout scripture. Here are some examples that I found. And these are really very small and pulling them out and we're going to look at them really quickly. But I just really want to illustrate that it's at the beginning, it's in the middle, and it's in the end of God's word. This this concept of the kingdom of God. In the very first chapter, Genesis chapter 1 and verses 27 and 28, I'm going to read it to you. 
you can turn there if you want to. It's sometimes hard to find the very first chapter because there's all of the stuff before. Here we go. Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. That's kingdom language. I'm going to talk about how in a minute. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This passage, these words were written by someone living in the ancient Near East. And they were originally read by people living in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, when a king was ruling a kingdom, he would, in the places that people frequented, like, say, their temples, no matter what religion they were practicing, the king would have someone carve out an image of himself And put it in the places where the people were going to be a lot. Especially in outposts of his kingdom. So if there was a king of Lagrange. And he also ruled Giddings. Which would have in this context been really far away. Right? Without any cars. He would carve images of himself. Have them carved. And then would go to all the places that people frequented in Giddings and set those images up to make sure that everyone in Giddings remembered who their king was. There's a statue of him right there at the Brookshire Brothers and in the post office and in the church because that's where everybody went all the time. So that concept really familiar to the person who wrote Genesis chapter 1 and to the people who were reading it. So when God says... I'm going to create these humans and I'm going to put them in Eden, in this garden, which, by the way, if you have time, this is a side note, read a description of the Garden of Eden in Genesis and read a description of the temple in Jerusalem and notice how much parallel language there is. They're both on a hill. There's trees in both of them. There's a lot of symbolism in it. So God God takes humans and says, you're my Image bearers in this temple that I've created. So that we can remind one another who he is and that he's reigning. It's kingdom language. It doesn't occur to us immediately, but it would have to the first people who read it. He also tells them to subdue and rule everything else that he's created for him on his behalf. Right? He's not going to be physically present, certainly not after Genesis chapter 3, right? when everything falls apart. So he's put images here to rule and subdue. Then in the middle of scripture about Zechariah as one of the um, prophets for the kingdom of Israel, um, everything again has fallen apart. That's a, also a biblical theme. <laughs> everything falls apart. And um, Zechariah the prophet Tells the people that the Lord is going to be their king. All they were familiar with at the time was a series of human kings. Then um, they're taken captive. They're all in exile. Zechariah tells them the Lord is going to be your king. And then if we fast, that's in the middle of the book. If we fast forward all the way to the very last chapter of the book. 
Actually, 22 is the last chapter. I fudged it. I just realized that. 20, in chapter 21 of Revelation, in two different places, it refers to the one who is sitting on the throne. Who is, P.S., spoiler alert, when Zechariah says the Lord will be king over Israel, it is the Lord who is sitting on the throne in Revelation um, 21. So there, even even if we're not if we're not trained to see this theme, right? We, we can zoom right past it. The one who sits on the throne, sure, that's God. What, right? Got it. Check. But if you if you're thinking about kingdom from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and then something like throne shows up, you're like, ah, there it is again. We're gonna see some other words um, in just a minute that we may zoom past as well. So not only is it in the beginning, the middle, and the end of Scripture, but it's this kingdom language. It is uniquely Jewish. It fits um, into Jewish history in some really beautiful and really profound ways. And we're just going to look at a couple of them. When Moses led the people out of Israel and then received uh, the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai, that is when... Um, just this family of people became a nation. It was the, the birth of the nation was during the Exodus and then, then them going into the promised land that God had promised Abraham. So from Moses until we get to King Saul, Saul's the very first king of the people of Israel, they're under what's called a theocracy. God, God ruled and reigned over them directly. They were, they were a nation of people, sort of like America is a nation, but they didn't have a president or their own king. God was their king. But then in 1 Samuel, in a couple of different places, the people um, have kind of like a middle school moment and want to be like everybody else. Like literally that's what they tell God through the prophet. Like they kind of stomp their foot. This is too hard. To follow God because we can't see him and we can't always tell what he's saying to us. And we don't have confidence to go into battle with him being the one leading us. And so we want a king. And what they say multiple times is we want to be like everyone else. Give us a king. And um, by the way, God called that back in Deuteronomy. He gives them a list of things that the king should live up to and be and do. And then it's not until First Samuel that they demand a king and he gives it to him. But they become a monarchy. That's the first time there is a human king leading the people of God is when um, Saul becomes king. That, by the way, speaking of our biblical theme of things falling apart, it doesn't go well. Saul's literally crazy. Um, literally. And so then there's this important story where... Uh, the prophet goes to a particular family and says, I think the next king is supposed to come from your family. Bring on your sons. I'm going to pick him out. So they bring all, they have a lot of sons. Uh, the father brings out the tallest and handsomest. And the prophet goes down the line, no, 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 no. Aren't there any more? Well, we could go get the one keeping the sheep. He, does, he doesn't smell great. Not the sharpest tool in the shed. We got him. Yeah, bring him. And that's the one. And that day, remember, David is anointed as the future king of the country. So usually, right, a king 
rules and then his son rules and then his son rules and then his son rules. It, ten, it tends to stay in the same family but this time Saul disqualified himself and his whole family so it skips over to David's family but then there's this promise I put the passages up there we're not we don't have time to read them in first chronicles 17 and in second Samuel 7 God comes to David who, who's reigning as king and says I promise you that there is going to be a king from your family who is always going to be on the throne. And he calls this king something really important. He says he's going to be the Messiah. And that word means the anointed one. This king that's going to rule forever is the anointed one. In the same way that David as a shepherd little kid was anointed to be the king the messiah is the anointed one he's going to be the king that fulfills this promise that god made to david so when we get to the gospels and we see that jesus is called the messiah and even christ is not right not jesus's last name it's a title And means the Messiah, the anointed one. This is the Christ, the one that God said back there to David was coming. This whole, all of the the kingdom language, right? It fulfills the history of Israel. There are some who suggest that we might win more friends and influence more people if we would quit talking so much about the Old Testament and really just talk about God in the New Testament because he seems kinder and gentler in the New Testament and that might make this whole Christianity thing more attractive to people if we would talk about the New Testament and not the Old Testament so much. If we just pick up the story in the Gospels, who, who cares that somebody's a Messiah? What does it even mean to be anointed if it's not a fulfillment of the things in the Old Testament? So the, this, this history of the Jewish people, the way the nation of Israel wanders through the desert, has all these promises made to it, fails miserably at having a human king. They say, if you'll just give us a human king, we'll be faithful to the covenant. We'll do all the things we said we would do as the people of God. False. They don't do it well. They end up in exile. There are no more kings. There is no more temple. But the Messiah shows up. Right? We we cannot unhitch the new testament from the old testament it's all part of the story and it makes our understanding of the new testament deeper and richer if we know the parts of the old testament so why does it matter to people in uh, the western part of the world after the industrial revolution we vote on our leader we all we have the church thing nailed right like we know how to do this deal why why does this kingdom matter well first of all we are naturalized citizens of the kingdom of god nobody was born into it don't let anybody tell you otherwise How long have you known Jesus? Well, just always. 
we just always went to church, right? It's not how it works, right? You don't get to be naturalized of, uh, to a country that you weren't born into without some work going into it, right? You have to learn to speak the language. You have to understand how things work. You have to pass a test sometimes. And you have to swear an oath. If we're in Christ, then our allegiance is to him and we have renounced our faithfulness to the things that we were born into. We are naturalized citizens. Paul uses the adoption language in multiple places where he writes in the New Testament. We weren't just sworn in. We didn't just get a new passport. We were adopted into a family. We wouldn't commonly line up political like citizenship language and family language. Right? Those things don't really go together for us. I mean, it does matter where your parents were born for where you're going to be a citizen. But in a fresh new way, God and through Paul in several places in the New Testament talks about us being adopted into God's family when our citizenship is transferred. That's way more intimate, way more personal than than just your passport, right? Uh, Paul also uses um, in Romans grafted in. So if if agriculture makes any sense to you, I can't I can't keep a cactus alive like succulents die under my care. Um, but if agricultural things really click for you, this would be Romans 11 would be a great thing for you to read because um, what Paul talks about is a um, a vine, a grapevine. Um, that has particular branches that aren't bearing fruit. They're not doing what they were intended to do, right? Grapevines were created to grow grapes. But the, this branch of the vine's not doing what it was intended to do. So uh, God cuts that, that branch off and grafts in a branch from a wild vine that didn't didn't naturally belong there and then the wild vine takes to the plant so well that it ends up growing fruit it's all an image right of the way that we've been brought into God's family and this kingdom that we're talking about it's a it's a really beautiful really profound um, picture but here's the deal Naturalized citizens are sometimes second-class citizens. When I was new to LaGrange, I moved here as an adult. And in making small talk, getting to know people, one of the kind of familiar small talk questions is, well, who are your people? Right? And, and what people who are from here want to know is, are you related to anybody who actually belongs here or did you just move in? Right? Sometimes, right, you, I, I was like a, I was a naturalized citizen of LaGrange, right? I wasn't born here, just pulled in with the truck, unloaded my stuff. Here I was, right? That, that doesn't happen. In this kingdom that we're talking about. 
there there are no second class citizen well you're a citizen kind of in name only right like you still speak with an accent and you don't really know what's going on and so we're going to put up with you we'll give you a passport we'll put up with you but i mean you're one of us but you're not one of us you know that human thing that we do in fact we're not just citizens of the kingdom of god we have standing in the kingdom not only were we adopted we're ambassadors is what paul calls us we have a job to do so we all know what an ambassador does right the ambassador from the united states to chile goes it's recognized within the us that there's a person who probably speaks spanish and understands some things about chilean culture and also will represent the united states really well so we hire them we pay a salary and we move them to chile to represent us as a country and to convince the leaders there that what our leader is saying and doing is good and right and maybe even good and right for them right that's what the, that's the job of an ambassador do we 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 would never pick an ambassador who wasn't going to represent us well right we would never pick an ambassador who didn't speak the language where they were going didn't understand what was going on wasn't sharp enough to understand foreign policy right for paul to call us ambassadors means that we didn't we weren't just like it's it's not just okay that we claim Christ as our king he he expects us he believes that we can represent him well paul says in second corinthians 5:20 not only are we therefore Christ's ambassadors listen to this phrase as though god were making his appeal through us don't don't just hang out there except the fact that you're right like what's the old uh saying they're so heavenly minded they're no earthly good the people who are like well we're headed to glory i'm just going to sit in the back row here and bide my time nope making his appeal through you 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 stay there you're you're naturalized you belong to me the king but you stay there and you be my my ambassador you represent me you let people know that i am good that it's worth it that they're invited he gives us standing in the kingdom and he also gives us good works to do paul writes in um ephesians again um that we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He's prepared them for us ahead of time. He expects us to work for what the prophets called the good of the city. If we go back to Jewish history for just a minute, they're in exile. They can't live in Israel anymore. They've been scattered to a couple of different countries to live as really as political prisoners. And what God tells them to do is to work for the good of the city that they're in. Don't just sit there. Don't let the fact that you're not home affect your effectiveness. 
Do good things for your neighbors, for the people that are around you. Work for the good of the city that you're in. He's asking us to do exactly the same thing. You're an ambassador and you have good work to do because of where your citizenship is. Here's the big one. Our kingdom citizenship is our only identity. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God and I'm mother. But if I find my whole identity in mothering, then I've set myself up for failure. It's it's shifting, right? Kids get older, their needs change, what they need from their mother changes, your relationship changes. You can't I can't build my whole identity into that, but a lot of us try. I am a citizen of heaven and I'm also a neighbor. I am a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus and also I have a job. Right? But if my identity is all tied up in my career, guess what? Pandemics happen and people get laid off. Well, then what? Not only is it better for us to be clear about what our identities are, it's better for everybody around us. For about a hundred days in 1994... In uh, the Central African country of Rwanda, the majority tribe sought, hunted down and killed members of a minority tribe, the Hutus and the Tutsis. There were um, upwards of half a million people were killed in just 100 days, just barely over three months. This while the, the bulk of the violence happened. There was a Rwandan pastor who had the opportunity um, before the genocide ever started to go to Kenya and go to seminary. And so he literally missed the whole thing. He was at seminary in Kenya in a neighboring country. And when he traveled back home, he has some really harrowing stories about going to the camps for internally displaced people, like where the people of the minority tribe had all gathered to try to keep everybody safe. Um, to try to find his family, try to find some members of his congregation. Um, when he got back to Rwanda, what he discovered uh, was that members of his own church had killed one another. And the quote from him is that he believes the genocide happened, especially within the church, Because people were relying on their tribal identity more than on their Christian identity. And he considered it a personal failure of himself of discipling people poorly. He said, I thought I had been discipling them. I had been preaching. I had been teaching. I had been um, asking people to be more like Jesus. But in a way that allowed them to maintain their primary identity as what tribe they were from. And then they, they threw this Christianity thing on top of it. And members of the same church ended up killing each other. We, we haven't faced that. Right? But when we operate out of an identity that is not our real identity... It affects things, right? If, I, if I'm not sure of my citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, it has to affect how I parent. If I'm not convinced that my king 
has prepared a place for me and that the way Revelation 21 and 22 describes what we're headed toward is infinitely better than what's going on here. If I'm not convinced of that, definitely affects how I work, what kind of neighbor I am. It matters. Not just for us to be better students of scripture, although that's really important too. But if if we're convinced that we belong to a loving king and that a day is coming when the description in Revelation 21 of him drying every tear and there not being any death and there not being any mourning... If we're not sure that that's what's coming, what kind of ambassador can we be, right? How how do we not have the same fears and hang-ups that everybody around us does? This kingdom, it changes everything. And the rest of our identities, all of our roles... Right? Flow from there. We're going to end with um, reading just one short passage. In First Peter chapter 2. Um, Peter is one of my favorite, maybe my favorite disciple. Um, he, uh, man, he... He must have been charismatic in some way because the disciples are pretty content to let him speak for them a lot. Um, but also he just says the wrong thing a lot. He gets a lot of opportunities to speak and also he says dumb things um, a lot. And um, if you want to like get a real picture of redemption, like think of... Think of or go back and read the really dumb things that Peter says and then read his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 because he really like like a giant light bulb dings on over his head and he finally gets everything that Jesus um, was talking about. And then Peter writes uh, this letter. So in chapter 2 he is um, he's talking about Yeah, I started in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. He's talking about people coming to Christ um, and that Christ is the foundation. Um, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And then he goes on and talks about why people just trip over Jesus and don't build their lives on him as a foundation. So... We have to set that up because he's talking about them and then he's going to talk about you. So um, verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Look at verse 9. Here we go. This is a good one to memorize, to remind ourselves. But you, right? He's just been talking about the they, the people who don't understand Jesus as the foundation. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood a holy nation which by the way holy nation is the promise to abraham way back in genesis chapter 12 and then royal is what we've been talking about priesthood is a whole other wonderful thing that he bestows on us god's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light 
Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. They, they trip over Jesus. They don't understand. But you, a chosen people, royal priesthood. And he even says, so that you can declare that his goodness. Once we weren't a people. We had a citizenship somewhere, but it was never going to be enough. It was never going to allow us to fulfill the purposes that he created us for. It was never going to get us to him. But now... We're a people. We've received mercy. Right? When uh, you when you take your little blue passport that says you're an American and go live somewhere else for a little while, it's really an interesting process, and I think everyone should do it if you can. Um, but we, we don't really blend in Americans very well. Um, and they know who we are, especially I spent some time in sub-Saharan Africa, so I was also usually the whitest person around. So there's that. Um, it didn't matter how I dressed or how how well I might have learned the language or any of those things. Everybody was going to know I wasn't from there, right? And as soon as they figure out that you're not from Europe but instead from America, most cultures have an idea about what that means about you. Sometimes there's a little bit good to it. Most of the time, we have a pretty iffy reputation, right? They they know things about us. We export the worst of our television, P.S. So they've been watching all the worst that we've produced in television form. And they have an idea about how we're supposed to act. And so honestly, part of my job while I was living in sub-Saharan Africa was to convince people that I wasn't Maybe what they assumed that I was going to be. I think that there's a really clear parallel for us, right? The people at work, the people at school, your neighbors, they know that you show up here on Sundays, right? Sometimes we sort of blend in, but sometimes we stand out. And they also have an idea of what that means about you. Mm. Oh, you go to the Baptist church? Got it. We don't always have the best reputation. Sometimes it's iffy, right? And so our job is to convince people that maybe they don't have it all figured out about what it means to be citizens of the kingdom. And we could do a better job of representing our king, right? Allowing him to make his appeal through us. And that gets a lot easier if we're sure of what our identity is first. We don't, we don't necessarily need to knock on doors and have the four spiritual laws tracked ready to go. Right? That like makes me sweat thinking about it. It gives me hives. But I can take a casserole to somebody. Right? And I can do that. I can show up when they lose a loved one or need help packing to move or right. We we know what to do. We know how to represent our king. We we just you step into what your actual identity is. 
I'm going to pray. Lord, you are the king of all the kings. And we are privileged beyond measure uh, to be counted among your people. So would you teach us what that means? Um, What it means on Sunday mornings, but really what it means on Monday morning and on Tuesday night. um, To allow you to make your appeal through us and the way um, that we live the way that we speak. Um, Lord, would you show us this week how we might um, be an ambassador of your good kingdom and grace. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Cross Point Community Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this message was encouraging to you as you follow Jesus. For more about Cross Point Community Church, you can find us online at crosspointchurchtx.org. Have a great week.